Let's pray. Father, the Almighty One, the sovereign God over all creation, the one who was before, who is, and will always be. Lord, this morning we're able to come to you because you entered time and space in the embodiment of your Son, who took on human flesh and dwelt among us nearly 2,000 years ago. Jesus wasn't some guru that walked the earth, some wise sage, some miracle worker. He was far more than that. He was you incarnate, you taking on flesh. Why? Because at the cross, our sin needed to be accounted for. And there's only one way. You needed a perfect sacrifice, and Christ fit the bill. And Lord, his body is placed in the grave, and we just celebrated just a few weeks ago that empty tomb because three days later, he came out of the tomb. He's alive, and our Savior is sitting at your right hand interceding for us, and we have victory. And the book of Jude, a little epistle, this letter nestled in the latter part of the New Testament that we're going to look at, reiterates these truths for the church and the truths that we need to hear living in 2023. Lord, we are so grateful that we know the end and we know who reigns even now. And it's in the name of our King, our Savior, your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would turn to the book of Jude, and if you're going, where is that? It's in the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. That's the last book. So just move one book up and you will hit to the book of Jude. This week I was looking at titles of the world's shortest books. Titles of the world's shortest books. One was Famous Eskimo Surfers. <laughs> Different ways to spell Bob. These are the shortest books in the world. The Engineer's Guide to Fashion. Oh, that's awful. We've got some engineers in the room, sorry. Everything Men Know About Women, and the sequel, Everything Women Know About Men, right? And then I loved this one, All the People Not Known by Tom Flynn. <laughs> if you know Tom, he's one of our greeters out in the, and an elder here at the church, but he's a greeter out in the parking lot. Jude is not the shortest book in the New Testament, but it is definitely one of the shortest. And most New Testament scholars would argue it is the most neglected book in the New Testament. Now you can look up the Gospel of John and there are articles galore, there are commentaries written, you could fill this whole room. But when it comes to Jude, you're gonna be slim pickings to find commentaries on the book as well as articles being written or sermon series. And one person wrote to me even last night and said, you're crazy for preaching through this book. I said, yeah, well, that's why we got Michael. He can take over, <laughs> right? Uh, this, I, I, we're going to look. But I believe this book is vital for us as a church. It's vital for the church, Big C, living in the day we're living in. Yes, it echoes some of Second Peter, and we're going to see that. But there is a different flavor to it. And it's vital, and as we know, all scriptures God breathes. So it's worthy of our study. In your notes, if you're following along, there's this diagram, which if you're under the age of 24, and we have several in the room, you'll be tested over this later. 
Uh, the book of Jude, it's, and we're only going to study the first chapter. Um, <clears throat> it is just one chapter. But we're going to look at the opening, which is verses 1 and 2, and the closing, which you just saw in the video, which is verses 24 and 25. It's fitting because sometimes when you hear a study of Second Peter or you're looking at Jude, it can kind of have this, oh, it's heavy because it's warning about apostasy. It's warning about false teachers. But Jude has this glorious tone that it starts with and ends with that rings through the book. And we don't want you to miss that as we see it. But you'll see the, the main section, the body of the letter is going to deal with the purpose, the warnings against apostasy. That means to fall away. And then there's ways to avoid apostasy, which Jude is going to lay out as we go through the book. So let's look at the, this morning our focus is going to be just on the opening verses 1 and 2. And if you would, Jude 1 and 2. It says, from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James to those who are called. Wrapped in the love of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. Now, our writings of the New Testament and Old Testament were not written in a vacuum. There's a way that letters were delivered, and we talked about this with First and Second Peter, but the normal format is that you would have the author to the recipient greetings. And as you see here, there's the author, there's the recipient, but you do not have a greeting, which you normally do. And we'll get to that in a minute. Why would he do that? He goes right into a wish, well wish, or, or, or a blessing in verse 2. There is no chirene, greetings. So we'll look at that in a minute. But let's go back and let's look at the author, Jude. Uh, this is not to be confused with, hey Jude, that's with the Beatles. This is vastly different, right? It's a common first century name. Jude, Judas, uh, they're used, or um, Judah, they're used interchangeably. In fact, there are at least eight different Judes in the New Testament. That might surprise you. The term, the name occurs almost 40 times in the New Testament. It's very common. And the most famous or the most infamous is Judas Iscariot, right? The one who betrayed Christ, one of the 12. There was another one of the 12 who was also called Jude, uh, and that was the uh, son of James. And our author here is the brother of James. So they can't be the same fellow. So keep that in mind as we move through this. So who is this Jude? And there are several explanations, but the one that's most common among scholars, and which I believe is the case, is that Jude, this Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. We know uh, earlier in the Gospels, Matthew 13, they asked, isn't this the carpenter's son, referring to Jesus being the son of Joseph? And actually the question is, no, he's not, not necessarily, but yes. Isn't this his mother named Mary? Yes. And aren't these his brothers, and listen to the names, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Again, they're used interchangeably. Being that Jude is the, the last name mentioned among the brothers tells us most likely he is the youngest uh, of the, the brothers and maybe of the entire family. We know there are sisters as well. And so the question is, this Jude is most likely, again, who is he the half-brother of Jesus? What other support do we have? Well, let me give you a few. Because in verse 17, our author distinguishes or distances himself among the apostles. He doesn't claim to be one of those. I'm not one of the 12. 
I'm not Paul. So he, he lets us know that he's, he's distinct from them. Secondly, the author describes himself, and notice how he says it, of the brother of James. Now, I don't know about you, but you would expect, and this is true in the first century, he would have said, I am the son of, and the father would have been mentioned. Uh, in the first century, you weren't identified by a sibling, and yet Jude does that. So what does that tell us? James is someone very prominent. Because Jude is saying, hey, who am I? Oh, this is my brother. And so immediately we go, oh, yeah. So the audience knows who James is. And who is this James? Uh, another half-brother of Jesus, I believe the author of the epistle of James. And we know that James was a prominent leader in the early church. Galatians 2, he's mentioned with Peter, the apostle, and the apostle John as the three ringleaders of the early church. Later in Acts 15, when there's the huge Jerusalem council and knowing what to do with all these Gentiles that are being brought into the church, who speaks for the early church? James does. And so Jude says, that's my brother. And we go, ah, okay, now we've got it. Because there's no further, it's assumed, you, you know who this is. The character of the letter is very Jewish. There are no Old Testament quotes but as we're going to see, there are countless references to the Old Testament and Jewish writings. And so most likely we're dealing with what would say a Palestinian Jewish, uh, you know, now modern Israel, but Jerusalem-centered, focused, late 50s, early 60s AD. Some have argued, well, the Jude is a pseudonym. That's a false name. It's... Um, if I want to lean, lend credence to a letter that I write to the church, I might say this is from Chuck Swindoll or Billy Graham, and immediately you'd want to read it, right? Uh, David, don't know him, don't care, right? That's the idea. So the argument is they used Jude to lend credence to the book, but I would argue Jude? I mean, if I'm going to lean, lend credence to this book, I'd say it's from Paul or from Peter or John, someone far more significant in the early church. So who is our author? This is the half-brother of Jesus. It's someone who grew up in the home, <laughs> saw Jesus in action, saw his ministry. And we know the siblings, as you might expect, had a real problem. You know, your brother does everything right. You can just hear it, right? Mary's saying, why can't you be like Jesus? All right. <clears throat> And, and it's not until the post-resurrection that Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 appears to James and the family, and we see a belief and an embracement. Yes, this Jesus really is God. Some have argued this book is so small and seems so insignificant. Why would it ever have been included in the New Testament, the writings? And there are those who try to dismiss this book as part of the New Testament, what we call the canon. That's a word meaning measuring stick or measurement. Why wouldn't it be included? Well, let's remember that it's the Holy Spirit, not the church, which determined which books should be included in the New Testament. The church only acknowledged or recognized what the Holy Spirit had inspired, which was that which is normative for faith and practice. While we don't have a lot of time and we could spend hours on canonicity, etc., and talk about the obscure books, I think it's important to remember these, these points here 
well then if it's the Holy Spirit which determines and the church just simply recognizes what was the criteria for recognizing Jude or any other New Testament book that we have and I've given you four there needed to be a direct or indirect relationship or connection with an apostle just as the Old Testament ends with the prophets the New Testament ends with the apostles secondly there needs to be conformity with the rule of faith in other words, if this book doesn't agree with the Old Testament books that we know are inspired, we got a problem. The book of Sirach. Sirach 42 says that the evil of a man is better than the good of a woman. Oops, that's a real problem. That's one of the reasons Sirach is not included uh, in the canon. Thank goodness, right? The book claims to be the word of God. There are no apocrypha books that claim to be the word of God. But Paul is very clear in 1 Thessalonians, this is the word of the Lord. And so that's a, another piece that they're looking at. The church and the early church, the book needed to be accepted by the Christian community at large. This is significant. In other words, it's not just a group in Alexandria, northern Egypt that are accepting Jude. So is those located in modern Turkey or over in Rome. Everyone's recognizing this is part of the canon. The book of Jude was seen as scripture very early in the church. In fact, the Muratorian canon uh, AD 200 includes it as part of the New Testament writings. You say, well, 200, that's late. Keep in mind, it wasn't until going into the second century that you had these writings that were being written to try to undermine the gospel or undermine the New Testament. And so by the 200s, the church said, we got a problem. We got some writings here that don't belong. We need to come together and say, no, these are the official books. And Jude is included in that canon. And so, I would argue, based upon this criteria, the early church recognized the need to include the letter of Jude in the New Testament writings. Well, that was free. Let's get back to the, the book, shall we? From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. He tells us two things, apart from his name. I'm a slave of Christ. Now, it's not just that he's any slave, and they were certainly were prevalent in the first century. No, he goes, I'm a slave of Christ himself. Slave is used of Old Testament characters time and time again to indicate their service to God, their acquiescence to him. Paul, Peter, James will refer to themselves as the slave of Christ. In fact, Paul will refer to himself as a slave in the, in the opening of his letters, Romans, Philippians, and Titus. James will include it in his greeting, and John will include it in Revelation 1.1. So we have numerous New Testament writings, such as Jude, who say right out of the gate, I'm a slave to Christ. I think of Paul's words in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If you know anything about Galatians, Paul is a little honked when he writes that letter. He says, or am I trying to please man? No. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He wears it as a badge. And certainly it speaks of subordination, of responsibility. At the same time, it's a self-identification to say, I am an agent of my master. One scholar writes, he states, it should be known that James' self-identification as a slave agent of Jesus Christ serves as a claim to authority, divine commission, and he would argue even inspiration. Standing behind him is Christ himself. This is not a mere statement of humility. I think that's true. 
as Jude launches into this letter, he goes, I'm a slave of Christ, which tells you, one, I submit to him, but two, I am representing him as I write this letter. This is key as he pens this book. I find it odd at first that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, would say, I'm the slave of Christ. But when you think about it, it would be odd not to. (laughs) Because Jude understands this Jesus isn't just someone that I grew up under the same roof with. This, This is God who took on human flesh, who dwelt among us. And I saw him in the resurrected body. I've seen the power of his name and what it does and the authority that it comes. And so why wouldn't Jude give honor to Jesus and submit to his lordship? So Jude says, I'm a slave of Christ. And secondly, he says, I'm a brother of James. Again, we've talked about that. It gives credence to his writing. And then notice he says, to those who are called. So now he, he tells us, I'm writing to you. We don't know the location. We can surmise, but it's not like Romans or Ephesians or Philippians. We know where those locations are. Again, it shouldn't bother us. But as I mentioned, this is a Jewish, predominantly a Jewish audience. Because Jude is going to look to the Old Testament narratives, the theology, the language. He'll even quote from Jewish writings of the intertestament period, and he loves to speak in triads. So watch that as we move through this letter. Uh, he'd do great in preaching 101, you know, three points and then a poem, right? And so notice what he says. He gives us three. You've been to my audience who have been called, who've been wrapped in the love of God and kept for Jesus Christ. Let's unpack those. First of all, if you're following along in your notes, he says you've been called by God. It's a major theme in the New Testament, not just with Jude. Second Timothy 1, he is the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not based on our works, We don't bring anything to the table, but for our own purpose and grace granted to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Jude's writing to an audience, and they are similar to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, the false teachers have one foot in the door. It's like the salesman who won't let you close the door. In Jude, they're sitting at the table. They have creeped in so far, and the church is under attack. It's unraveling. And so he starts this letter saying, hey, you've been called by God, you who know Christ as your Savior. And, and what it does is, first, it, it, it helps you know who you are. He's, he's writing, this is who you are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, we've called into the fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Secondly, not only does it remind us who we are, but it also reminds us who they should be or who, they, who we should be. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort, because you've been called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And so, he says, you've been called And again, that divine recognition or recognition of divine calling is crucial to withstanding the teachings of the false teachers. It it serves as a bulwark, doesn't it, against the attacks that can come, deceit from the false teachers, and even the doubts that rise up within our soul as we're being lamb-blasted. And it's a reminder 
to them as well as to us. We are his. He has called us. And he's given us the resources, if he's called us, to serve him. What a privilege, right? And to glorify him. And so he says to these saints, you've been called. Then he says, you're, you're wrapped in the love of God. God's calling, if you want to do a study this afternoon, is to look in the New Testament. It's usually linked with the love of God, almost always. They go hand in hand. God's election of people is not motivated by their merit, as if they were elected and called due to their virtue. Mm -mm. Our calling was based upon the love of God. Now, many English versions here translate the simply loved of God. The Net Bible has placed it wrapped in the love of God. And I love that rendering because they're trying to convey the grammatical construction because what is being highlighted here in the Greek is that it's causative and there's a, a locative sense. In other words, the grammatical in, in, construction is addressing people who are beloved by God as well as secure and enveloped or in, wrapped in God's love. And so that's why the Net Bible has taken it accordingly. If you're a parent, there's nothing better than having a kid just come up and you just wrap your arms around them, don't you? You just don't want to let go. <laughs> you just, the, and, and the thought that our Heavenly Father is wrapping us in His arms, He's called us and He's taken to the point that He loves us so. It's interesting, the tense of the verb is a perfect tense, which tells us it happened in the past, but it has ongoing effect. It's the same when Jesus said it is finished at the cross. It's a perfect tense. In other words, what he accomplished there is for all eternity. His love never ends. There's a verse, verses that are found in Romans 8. Would you read these with me? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> I love Paul. He's a good lawyer. He's making sure there are no clauses left out. It's, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. What does that mean for us who know Christ as our Savior this morning? Let me give you a few. If you feel rejected, abandoned, and deserted by others, remember, you're wrapped in God's love. If you feel defeated and ready to quit, remember, you're wrapped in God's loving arms. If you've suffered loss of a loved one by death or divorce, remember, you're wrapped in God's loving arms. If you're fearful, feeling inferior, unworthy, insecure, remember, you're wrapped in God's loving arms. If you feel like a social misfit and struggling being accepted, remember, you're wrapped in God's loving arms. If you feel betrayed and maligned, remember, you're wrapped in God's loving arms. Why? Because nothing, as the text tells us, will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tony <laughs> Erickson Tata was paralyzed from the neck down makes this profound statement. She says, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. The greatest good suffering can do for me is to increase my capacity for God. Real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but understanding his character and trusting in his promises and leaning on him and resting on him as the sovereign one who knows what he is doing and doing all things well. To those of you who know Christ as your Savior, he called you. He loves you. And Jude is not done. Notice what he says. And he has kept you for Jesus Christ. The word kept here is to preserve the believer is secure in Christ Jesus. The seal on the ball jar is not going to give out. <laughs> you're, you're kept by him. It's interesting, the term is used three other times in this epistle. And he says of the false teachers, I'm keeping you for judgment. The angels that have fallen, keeping you for judgment. But for you believers... Ah, I'm keeping you for Jesus Christ. And that's where the discussion among translators is not the term kept, but the case ending. It's a dative case, and it can be translated two different ways. Bear with me. One, the, the King James or the NIV takes kept by Christ. The other, which is seen here in the Net Bible, the, the ESV or the New American Standard, kept for Christ. So we have by or for. You know, what's the difference? One, that by Christ is a dative of agency. In other words, it's Christ who is keeping you secure. And it does parallel. You're loved by God. You're kept by Christ. So it fits. But I would argue it's a dative of advantage. And what that means is Jude is emphasizing the goal of our salvation. He's called you. He loves you. And he is keeping you for the end when Christ appears. It's huge. The grammatical construction thus would be telling us whatever we encounter in life as followers of Jesus, the temptations, the trials, the onslaughts from Satan, the Lord promises to watch over us at every moment, keeping us safe for Christ. It's so vague in the grammar that some scholars say it's both possible. Really, at the end of the day, the emphasis is clear. Whatever view you take, those whom God has called to himself are loved and kept until the day of salvation. That's the point. And so as Jude comes out of the starting block to a church who's suffering, he says, hey, you've been called, you've been loved, and you have been kept. This trifold uh, identification of his readers what are the implications? Think about this. Number one, it provides meaning, significance, and sense in this world. <laughs> you ask people, what's the meaning of life? To be happy, successful, pizza, make a contribution, take care of the planet. And you think about all of those, they're all fleeting. I mean, let's take pizza. I hate cold pizza. That's not gonna work. Right? You could run with all of those. There are others who say, oh no, there is no meaning in life. It's just whatever you want it to be. Excuse me. If that's the case, 
<laughs> it's like getting an Uber driver. You get into the car and he says, where do you want to go? You say, I don't know. Just drive. Well, which way should I turn? I don't care. Whatever you think. Just drive. There, knowing who we are in Christ and why we exist, the value we have in him, and that there's a plan for all eternity brings hope, peace, and joy. The God of the universe, in other words, is intentional and there is purpose. And that's what Jude is highlighting from the get-go in the letter. Another implication, salvation begins in the heart of God, not in the will of men. Romans 9, don't miss this verse. Paul says in Romans 9, 16, so then it does not depend on human desire or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Now later Paul writes, or earlier I should say, in verse 11 of that chapter, Paul states that our election was, our calling election was not based upon our works, but upon him. I don't know about you, but I find that very comforting because in high school I was always the last person picked for the athletic teams. <laughs> right? To know God doesn't look and say, well, you're not athletic enough, you're not good looking enough, you're not smart enough. No. What he looks at is full of love and that he sees his creation. It's not based on anything that we do. Oswald Chambers writes, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and his grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Our calling, we see here, starts in the mind of God. He called us before the foundation of the world. Wow. And our calling being loved by God, another implication is that Jesus is personally involved. He's intimately intertwined with you. If you know Christ as your savior, he's got a lot at stake. He sent his son to die for you. Well, he called you, he sent his son. He's given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Can you imagine receiving a speeding ticket? Some of you don't have to imagine, but imagine receiving a speeding ticket. And I come to your door and I say, hey, don't worry about it. We've got it all taken care of. I know some police folk. We can talk to them. I can sure you don't have to pay for it. Just go ahead and tear it up. Well, yeah, some of you are smiling. You're right. Don't do that, right? That would be crazy. Now, if the head of the police department came to your door and said, I've got your ticket, and we just think you're wonderful, and you've, you've, done, you've had such a great track record, I'm just going to tear this up. It's all taken care of. Now you can rest assured. Why? He has authority. I have no authority. And Jesus is personally involved with our salvation. He says, I got this. <laughs> we don't have to worry. He, he called us, he loves us, and he has kept us. So I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus as your personal savior? In other words, have you come to a point in your life that you know you're not perfect before a holy God and have come to recognize that the only way to have a restored relationship with God is to accept the gift of Jesus who came, died on a cross, was buried, and rose again three days later. The text tells us, 
For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And your, your issue this morning is not, well, am I one of the called? No, your issue is, what are you going to do with your sin? <laughs> what are you going to do with Christ? And if you know Christ is your Savior, you rejoice. And that leads me to another implication of this calling, this loving, and this keeping. And that is, it is a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> Why did God choose me? Why did he choose you? All I can think is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should love us so? The God of the universe, he could have just zapped it all and started all over. No. It's interesting. There is something missing in the next phrase, may mercy, grace, and love be lavished on you. It occurs in almost every New Testament writing. And that word is grace. A lot of scholars argue, well, Jude doesn't mention grace here because that's not the issue that, well, in fact, it is an issue that he's going to address later in the letter, so he, he leaves it out for here at this point. No, I think that he's just, that's what he's just highlighted. Because you could write grace over the calling, grace over the love, and grace over the keeping. And that's why I think he's just highlighted it. And so now he gets the next three. Based upon our spiritual standing in Christ Jesus, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. Mercy. That's something we don't deserve. It's compassion. It's receiving kindness when nothing can be claimed. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, mercy is rooted in God and experienced in a relationship with him. It's what comes from him. And the readers, Jude knows, needed God's mercy to withstand the false teachers, but they also needed mercy as they related to those who had succumbed to the false teachers. They need to err on grace. They need to err in mercy here as they engage one another. And while mercy of God can be seen at the cross, and surely it can, and the provisions that were made to remove our sin and to give us his righteousness, there's a need for an ongoing mercy. That's why the psalmist declares, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This church needed, that is his recipients, Jude's readers, needed to be reminded or called upon that mercy be lavished on them. He's not done. He says peace, which you would expect, wouldn't you? It's a favorite biblical greeting. It's found at the beginning, at the end of every New Testament writing, except James and 1 John and Jude. Well, it is here in Jude, excuse me, but it's not in the other two. It's, it's this peace that, again, it comes from Christ in their relationship to him. One theologian writes, peace is a conception distinctly peculiar to Christianity. It's a state of a soul that assured of its salvation through Christ and that there's nothing that one needs to fear from God because we have a relationship with him. The false teachers are trying to stir up the pot and we're gonna see that as we go through. Again, we saw a little bit of that in 2 Peter and peace is needed for these believers. One, they're disturbing the camp, but two, they're, they're, I think they're kind of undermining, is what I believe really true? I'm hearing all these things. Jude, are, are you sure what you've taught us is right? 
And they need peace. And finally, they need love. And this is the only New Testament writing which includes love in the greeting. <laughs> Mercy, peace, and love. I love Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This congregation, and I would argue we living in 2023, desperately need peace, mercy, and love. The three blessings that I would argue, you ask people, what is the meaning of life? Ultimately, they're trying to get to those three things. They're longing for mercy, they're longing for peace, and they're longing for love. Ask those in Sudan this morning, where's peace? Ask those living on the streets, where's love? Where's, where, where's peace? <laughs> Ask this world, where do you find these things? Only in those who have been called, those who have been loved, and those who have been kept by the Lord. Why? Because all three are embodied in Christ. God is love. Christ is one of peace, and it's in him we find mercy. And I love it that Jude says, may all of this be yours, and may it be lavishly given. <laughs> it's what that term is the same term found, if you remember, in 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 as well. You say, well, how can Christ give us more mercy, more peace, and more love when he loves us as much as he can? He's given us peace and mercy. What does that mean? What, what is Jude trying to say to the church I believe Jude is addressing the Lord's continual work in the lives of believers. That there be a greater appreciation of who he is and what he is doing in our lives. And as I said, mercy, peace, and love are ongoing needs in a broken world. Resources that not only the Lord provides, but what Jude calls the believers to display in their lives, to live it out. It's true in Jude's day, and it's true in our day Mercy, peace, and love are needed in abundance. You know, what a comfort, isn't it, O oh church, to know that these resources only come from the Lord, the one who's called us, the one who's wrapped us in his loving arms, and the one who's kept us for the day when Jesus Christ appears. What a glorious praise. Let's close in prayer. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. We don't often pause just to ask, but I'm going to do it this morning. As you have your heads bowed and eyes closed, perhaps you're here this morning and this is all foreign to you. You've struggled with the meaning of life. <laughs> there is no meaning. And this Jesus thing, it just seems so distant. Perhaps you're here this morning and say, David, I need to pray for me. Would you raise your hand? So that I could be praying for you. Just say, yes, I see. Two, three, yep. Lord, I just need you to touch into my life. Perhaps this morning, you know Jesus, but the idea of mercy, peace, and love, <laughs> those are so foreign concepts. And you say, David, can you pray for me? If you'd raise your hand. Yes. Father, As we start this new letter, and it can be a bit academic looking at who's the author and the background and the date, 
We don't want to miss the beauty of the letter and these opening remarks. Jude's writing to a group of believers that are besieged internally. The church at that day was suffering from false teachers, from things happening within and without. And things are crumbling right before them. And as Peter launches, Jude launches into this letter, he says, oh, church, don't forget the standing we have in Christ and your son, O oh Father. And Lord, there's some hands that have gone up this morning and said, yeah, I'm really struggling with who Jesus is and knowing what it means to be a follower of Christ, the meaning of life. And I just ask, Lord, that you would intervene in these lives. Father, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, perhaps this week has been rough. And they need that prayer that Jude gave to the church. May mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. And I pray that for them as well as for all of us as a body of believers. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing at CBF. We see your hand in so many ways. But Father, we know that there are those that are struggling in our midst. And we lift them up to you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you called us before the foundation of the world. Thank you that you've, those who've placed their faith in you, you've wrapped us tightly in your arms of love. And Lord, that you are keeping us, preserving us for a day. And what a day it'll be. Lord, as we reiterate the words of Revelation, referring to your son, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's in his name.